0: Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. We've got a whole lot. I know I say this. I say this every day because it's true. We've got a whole lot to talk about today. We've also got a whole lot to talk about this week. We've got two awesome interviews as well coming up. So I hope I'm able to talk about everything I want to. I really want to talk about the eviction moratorium and what it means um, what what it means for the CDC's actual power? Why sh- we should be thankful for the Constitution and thankful for the Supreme Court, and just talking about how close we are in so many ways to tyranny, and thankfully we still have these uh, we still have these barriers in place that protect us from that. So I really want to talk about that. Hopefully that will be. On Wednesday, but I also want to talk about what's going on in John Piper's uh, church and why that matters to us. But today, we're going to give a brief update on what uh, what is happening in Afghanistan. We're going to go through the servicemen and women who died, um, and also we're going to talk about Isaiah six eight. The president. Um, he, he mentioned Isaiah six, eight, here I am Lord send me In his speech last week. And so I want to talk about that and, and what that verse actually means. So it's a little bit of a most misused. If you've been here for a while, you know that sometimes we do most misused episode episodes where we take, a verse that is misapplied, misinterpreted, and we talk about the context and what it actually means, and how the true meaning of these verses is so much better than when they are decontextualized and used in a way that they are not meant to be used. So we've done, for example, um, Philippians four thirteen, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and so today. We're going to kind of do an abbreviated version of that with Isaiah 6-8. And so we'll have a lot of theological encouragement as well. But I just want to give a brief update, at least right now as I'm recording this uh Monday morning. This is what's happening. So, um, as I said, 13 American servicemen and women were killed by the blast of an ISIS K suicide bomber last week. ISIS K is an offshoot of ISIS, which I'm I'm sure you've heard of before. I'm sure you've heard of ISIS. It stands for Islamic State in Um Karazan. Province. Sorry if I mispronounced that. They're a terrorist organization. They're seeking to establish more power and will be doing so with the protection of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, We knew that an attack at Kabul was a possibility. Terrorists tend to seek these highly crowded areas, these uh, chaotic areas. And thanks to the haphazard withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan that is causing millions to flee, including American citizens. Uh, Thanks to this administration, keeping all of our troops at the airport rather than allowing them to go into the country and rescue our civilians and allies like other countries have. Thanks to this administration, allowing the Taliban to serve as the security for the airport. This happened. We've talked about all of these things on two previous episodes with Rebecca Heinrichs and Morgan Ortegas. Go listen to those episodes. If you have not already, you will get a very good and simple understanding of everything that is going on there and why. We'll link those two previous episodes in the description to this episode. Um, Another thing that happened over the weekend, the U.S. launched a drone strike targeting ISIS-K. Now, apparently, reportedly, it killed ISIS-K leaders, but Very strangely, they won't say which leaders it killed. And reports are now saying it looks like the drone also... Uh, killed civilians. So people are pointing out how bizarre it is that this administration won't release the names of the people killed by um, killed by the drone, but it reportedly did release the names of Americans and American allies in Afghanistan to the Taliban, supposedly to ensure their safe passage, but in actuality, putting a target on their back. So just horrible leadership all the way around. Like I said on an Instagram Live last week, yes, we can chalk a lot of this up maybe to encompass and fumbling the ball, but every day it gets harder and harder to do that and it looks more and more nefarious. I don't like to ascribe nefarious motives when you can just ascribe um, to them stupidity or incompetence, but again, with every step that has been taken so far, it gets more and more difficult uh, not to look at this situation and see that it was an intentional Disaster, Um, at least in some ways, I'm not sure if the goal was to cause chaos and to ensure that America is no longer trusted by its allies and ensure that America is no longer respected as the world superpower, that this would have gone any differently. So that's I'll I'll leave it I'll leave it there and I'll allow you to draw your own conclusions. Um, according to USA Today. Quote one day ahead of the American withdrawal deadline from Afghanistan, the US military kept up a constant flow of airport traffic in an effort to evacuate citizens and service members from Kabul. President Joe Biden was slated on Monday morning to meet with his national security team for updates as the operation winds down. Late Sunday, so that's yesterday, Biden was briefed by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Chief Staff Chief of Staff Ron Klein on a rocket attack at Hamid Karzai Airport. Uh, international airport. It did not disrupt evacuation efforts. So Biden said this are set this arbitrary deadline of uh, August 31st, that we would have all American troops about uh, out by then. That is tomorrow. The Taliban has said there is uh, no wiggle room on that. Uh, And so that is That's where we are. There are many more details that we don't have time to get into today that a lot of people I'm sure will be covering. Um, As you guys know, I can offer as much commentary as I can when it when it gets to expert analysis, that's when I call on other people to come on the show and give you that. And that is why I have done so over um, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, what we can talk about is the loss of life. There were um, about 170, at least 170 uh, Afghans that were killed by the blast of the suicide bomber. There were also... 13 service men and women. So here are the names and a little bit about each of them. So this is according to the New York Post. Maxton Soviak. He was 22. He was a Navy corpsman. Soviak, a Navy hospital corpsman, according to the New York Post, hailed from Berlin Heights, Ohio, graduated from Edison High School in Milan in 2017. The Sandusky Register reported his sister wrote on Instagram what a good kid he was, um, how excited he was to serve his country. It's crazy to think that he was only two years old on Nine eleven. Um Kareem uh, Nikuai, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. He was 20. He was in the Marines. Kareem Nikuai's father didn't realize that his son had been killed until he saw uh, a clutch of marines show up at his door in Norco, California. That's what the Daily Beast reported. He reportedly hadn't heard from his son in a while, but he had seen news reports that marines had died and apparently he says he had that sunken feeling that it could have been his son since he hadn't heard from him and then um on his uh on the ring camera on his doorbell he saw the Marines on his front porch, and that's when he knew. He went on Tucker Carlson tonight on Friday, and he said, "quote I'm going on about 36 hours. I believe that I've been up, and I'm still in shock. So he hasn't been able to sleep uh, since, or he hadn't been able to sleep since he found out that he had lost his son." quote The family is devastated, and his mother, who's an excellent mom, is doing the best that she can considering the circumstances. Oh, I just have a lump in my throat thinking about this. The day before Kareem Nikuai was killed, says the New York Post, he sent his dad a video that showed him talking with the Afghan children and giving them candy at the Kabul airport. Steve Nikuai said Friday that the clip put him and his wife at ease to where we felt like, OK, he's all right. Um, and so obviously it was after that, uh, a couple of days after that, that he figured out that his son had been killed by the suicide bombers blast. The New York Post says he was born the same year it started. No, actually, this is his father saying he was born the same year. It started 2001 and ended his life with the end of this war. That's what he told the Daily Beast. David Lee Espinoza, he was 20. He was also 20. He was in the Marines. Espinoza, 20, was from Laredo, Texas, according to the Laredo Police Department. So he was at most a few months old. On nine eleven, when this all started, Riley McCollum was also twenty. Uh, McCollum was from Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming, sorry, he was on his first uh, deployment. He had just gotten married. He was three weeks away from being a dad when he was killed in Thursday's blast. He was also just born on 9-11. Jared Schmitz, uh, 20, he was also in the Marines. Schmitz was a Lance Corporal from St. Charles, Missouri. Uh, His life meant so much more, his father says. I'm so incredibly devastated that I won't be able to see the man that he was very quickly growing into becoming. I cannot imagine the pain that these parents are feeling. As parents, you want your children, you expect your children, you hope for your children to out- live you. I just cannot even imagine the pain of knowing, of seeing that that's not going to be the case. Um, Hunter Lopez, 22, was also a Marine. Lopez was a corporal who hailed from California, planned to follow in his parents' footsteps and become a sheriff's deputy once he was done uh, with deployment. He was two years old, on 9-11. Dagan Page, he was 23. He was also a Marine, Marine Corporal. Dagan Page was native of Omaha, Nebraska, who loved hockey and hunting, according to the New York Post, and will always be remembered for his tough outer shell and giant heart, his family said on Friday. So he was three years old on 9-11. Ryan Naus, 23, uh, he was in the Army. The first U.S. Army soldier identified as a victim of Thursday's attack, Ryan Naus, was a, quote, motivated young man who loved his country, his grandfather said on Friday. Now, that's something that you never imagine uh, in your wildest dreams, that you will outlive your grandchild and yet that's what's happened i can't imagine again this grandfather's pain he hailed from knoxville tennessee he had just completed psychology operations training and was hoping to move to washington dc his stepmother said so he was three years old on 9-11 darren taylor hoover jr he was 31 this is the um oldest fatality he was the uh oldest victim at least american victim um, of this attack. He was also a Marine Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover Jr., known as Taylor, was a former high school football player from Midvale, uh, Utah, who lit up a room when he entered. His father told the Washington Post he was the most loving, giving, understanding person you could ever meet. The elder Darren Taylor told the paper. So he was 10 years old on 9-11. He is probably the only one, um, I would say definitely the only one from this group of um, service men and women who has any recollection at all of that day. Johanny, Johanny Rosario uh, Picardo, 25, she was also a Marine. Sergeant Johanny Rosario uh, Picardo, a, na- a native of Lawrence, Massachusetts, was a member of the U.S. Marine Corps' female engagement team, according to local reports. Um, Humberto Sanchez, uh, 22. He was also a Marine. Corporal Humberto Sanchez of Logansport, Indiana, was just four years out of high school when he was killed. We don't know too much more about him. We do know, obviously, he was two years old on 9-11. And then we've got Nicole G. I actually shared a picture of her. This was before she was killed because there was this very iconic photo of her holding an Afghan child. Um, Marine Sergeant Nicole G loved her work, says the New York Post, and told the world so only a week before she died. I love my job. The 23-year-old captioned an August 20th photo on Instagram showing the young sergeant cradling a rescued Afghan infant in her arms. G, a maintenance technician with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, was from Roseville, California. Um, G's roommate, she wrote this very poignant, heartbreaking uh, Facebook tribute talking about the fact that um, her car is still in the parking lot where she was. She said that she finds peace knowing that she left this world doing what she loved and talks about what a caring and loving and fierce person she was. Nicole was only three years old on 9 11. And then you've got Dylan Marola, 20 years old, also a Marine. This is the last one. Lance Corporal Dylan Marola arrived in Kabul less than 2 weeks before he was killed and Thursday's attack according to his older brother his brother was uh, says that we were notified last night um and then he tweeted a, fogo, a photo of the beaming marine in fatigues uh, he says RIP and say hey to dad and grandma for me maybe a few months old on 911 so This is devastating, obviously, and we should allow the sadness just to kind of sink in and remember the human cost to war. These are young men and women who answered the call to defend our country, to defend our constitution, most of them babies and toddlers when this war began because of a day uh, all but one of them uh, wouldn't be able to remember. They made the choice to join the Army or the Marines or the Navy, knowing it was a possibility they may die, but hoping to return. Home to their families and to do the things they wanted to do to accomplish their goals, to finish college, to get married, to start a family. Their families knew it was a possibility, a possibility they'd never make it home, but they prayed for them. They hoped for their safe return. I cannot imagine, as I've already said, uh, the heartache of a parent whose child is gone forever. I can't imagine what it's like to see those soldiers show up at your door knowing what they're about to say, the dread that sinking feeling, uh, knowing exactly the news you're about to hear, the news that you prayed that you would never hear and maybe that you expected that you would never hear. The young woman who is about to give birth to a baby who will never meet his father, uh, about to go through labor and delivery without him and without the anticipation of introducing them to each other. There were also, as we noted at the beginning, at least 170 Afghans who were killed. And while we don't know their names, obviously their lives matter too. These are all people made in the image of God, all people with souls that will now live forever. Uh, No matter how many lives have been lost to this war or to any war since the founding of our country— The sting of death does not get any duller. The ugliness of war does not fade. War is really ugly. Death is ugly. The pit that all of this gives us in our stomach, the way it makes our hearts ache with this kind of inexplicable, almost physical pain, the way it makes us angry, it is all an indication of something eternal, something that is set in every human heart, that it's not supposed to be this way, that we were originally created before sin entered this world for peace, not war, for justice, not oppression, for order, not chaos. And it makes us long For the day when we no longer have to hear about 20-year-olds dying in war and suicide bombers and terrorists and incompetent, wicked administrations, it makes us hope for heaven, for the new heaven and the new earth where Christ will establish his reign on earth forever. Everything that's happening in the world right now makes me long for that. Uh, People calling good evil and evil good, irrationality, depraved minds, the rejection of reality and morality that we see in mainstream culture, political divisions that I don't think can be bridged, tyranny, chaos. But at the same time, at the same time, it's hard for me not to cling to this world and this life. Um, That is a struggle that we talk about a lot that I'm going to talk about uh, more today And it's not always easy to transition into advertisements for the show, but it's something that we have to do. So I'm going to transition into that and then we'll come back into what I was about to explain. So as I just talked about, the entire world, it seems like, is in chaos and especially In this country, like we look at some of the political divisions that we have, some of the political fights that we have before us, and it's really easy to get anxious and to wonder if we will be able to preserve this republic, if we will be able to preserve liberty. And there are some people that are on the front lines, organizations on the front lines that are making sure that we do preserve the liberties that we hold dear. Religious liberty, the sanctity of life, freedom of speech— Marriage, parental rights, Uh, alliance defending freedom is on the front lines. They're defending these things in America's highest courts, they do all of this at no cost to their clients. That's why they're such a gem of an organization. It's completely funded by the generosity of patriots like you. With family, freedom, even basic biological reality under constant attack, ADF needs your support now more than ever. So go to ADFlegal.org slash Get your copy of ADF's ebook titled Generational Wins. It's absolutely free. You'll discover why fighting for what's Right isn't just important for today, but it impacts our nation for generations to come. America is much stronger. We have much more hope when we're standing together. Do that by going to generational wins or sorry, go to adflegal.org slash alley to get your copy of generational wins. Go to adflegal.org slash alley. ADFlegal.org slash alley. So as I was talking about this, this kind of struggle between hoping for the future of eternity and really wanting to cling to everything that I have now, I think it's probably a struggle that most of us share as Christians because I we have a lot of people and things that we love. Like I have a lot in this life that I look forward to, a lot that I don't want to let go of. A lot that um I, I rest my happiness and, and hope in. And honestly, Sometimes it is hard for me to imagine anything better than the life that I have with the people I have in it, and my temptation is to really fret over losing these things. To not put my hope in in heaven, to not put my hope in eternity, and really put my focus and my hope in the here and the now. To put my hope in things getting better in this life, in our in our country, swinging in the other direction for the better. Because I love America so much, I believe in her so much that sometimes I just can't let myself accept that maybe she is not destined to bear the torch of liberty and prosperity forever, that things really could continue to plummet that chaos could continue to grow more and more. And maybe it's good that I can't accept that because um, I I don't grow complacent because I do believe regardless of what's to come, I have a responsibility to seek the well-being of my country and its citizens by standing for what is good and right and true. And I will continue to do that with the hope that things can change. But I can't allow my hope and my happiness to depend on that possibility of change. I have to res- I have to surrender to the fact that even if all is lost here on earth, even if America goes to you know what even if we have nothing to cling to in this life. Uh, that Christ is enough, that the hope of glory is enough, that eternity is more than enough, that what is in store for us after this life is enough. It's enough for joy and gratitude and contentment today, even if all of the wonderful blessings that we have right now and hope to have in the future are no longer there. I have the propensity to worry. I worry about my kids. I worry about my husband. I worry about uh, myself, my work, a, a bunch of different things, things halfway across the world I, I worry about. Um, I worry about all of these things uh, being okay and, and working together. Um, but here's here are the things that I have to consider when I worry, and it, they might seem counterintuitive, but I'll explain why they do help me calm down when I'm laying in bed at night trying to fall asleep and I have all of these thoughts of anxiety swirling around about things happening in my life, things happening in other people's lives, wanting to control all all these factors to make sure everything works together how I want it to. Here are the things that I remember. Number one, number one, every single one of us will die every single one of us will die. That might not sound comforting, but I'll explain why it is. Hebrews 9.27 says that man is appointed to die. So we are all going to die. Psalm 103.14 says that we are like dust. So we are specks on the span of eternity. We are here on earth one second, we are gone the next. Every single one of our days were written uh, by God before any of them Came to be. So that's the second point that comforts me. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God is not waiting to see what happens to any of us. He is not contained by time like we are. He is not moving along a linear timeline. He is present everywhere, all at once, suspended over an intimately involved in every moment in world history and eternity. He knows and authored every second of our lives before those seconds actually unfold. And here's the third thing that comforts me, and I'm going to tie all of these together. Jesus said that we cannot add a single hour to our lives by worrying. Matthew 6, 27. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? So as bizarre... Um, As these comforts might seem, the reality is that we are all predestined to die at some point in our lives. How we are to die has already been predetermined and we cannot change how or when we are going to die by worrying about it. And no, I'm not saying that that permits us to be foolish or to be nihilistic uh, with how we spend our time or how we think about life and death, because even as God is totally sovereign over our lives, he still calls us to obedience. He calls us to do certain things. So between now and whenever we are appointed to die... We are called to love God and to love our neighbor. We're to do all the things uh, right in front of us that He has asked us to do. So He asks us to pray without ceasing, to uh, seek Him and His kingdom first, to love our spouses, uh, to love our kids, to love and serve our churches, to love our friends, to work really hard to produce things. He calls us to rest. He calls us to enjoy gifts of common grace like food and fellowship and nature. He calls us to share the gospel, to be unafraid in speaking and standing for what is good and right and true, to seek the welfare of those in our community and in our country. I want you to remember that C.S. Lewis quote that we read here the other day. I'm gonna read it again because I think it bears repeating. Maybe it bears repeating every single day. Uh, quote, how are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply. Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents, In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they cannot or they need not dominate our minds. This relates to uh, a lot of things that have caused people to fear and to panic today. Uh, We are not meant to. It is not obedient to stop our lives and to hide in our homes and to um, sit on our hands and to spend our lives worrying because there are threats to our safety, Now, I think there are prudent ways that we can seek the safety of ourselves and our families, and we can try to mitigate risk as much as we can, but simply hiding from the world and spending our time anxious, Jesus already says, that's not going to add a single hour to your life. So if we spend the next year huddled inside, refusing to live life, refusing to engage in the things that God has called all human beings to engage in, refusing to engage in the things that really make us human and you die from something else that is not a virus or not one of the million other threats that we you know, are hearing about on the news every day, you're just going to have wasted a year of your life and you're not going to have stopped anything. Um, And so we are called to keep moving forward, to keep obeying the Lord, to keep doing the things that He has called humans and specifically Christians to do. Uh, We've talked a lot on this podcast, especially last week, about anxiety and capacity and the limits to our knowledge and compassion, uh, the important balance of knowing what's going on in your community and even in the world, and doing what we can with what we're dealt. Uh, balancing that with also enjoying the here and the now and focusing just on doing the next right thing that's right in front of us. It's a hard balance, but it gets easier when we recognize that the God of the universe has written our days. He's numbered our days and he is totally and completely in charge. And so I hope that those things also comfort you when you find yourself wading through the the tides of anxiety and unable to, um, unable to come up for air. Uh, Remember that God is sovereign and totally in charge over all of it. And he has called us to do certain things and not other things. And we can only do what is right before us. We can only do what he has called us to do. Um, All right, I wanna get into Isaiah 6 and President Biden using this in a way that was completely off in his speech last week. And what Isaiah 6 actually means And why any of this matters. Before we get into that, though, I do want to tell you guys about our next sponsor for the day, and that is Hunter Douglas. So I haven't talked about Hunter Douglas in a while. I have talked about them on this show before, but they're an awesome sponsor. They make amazing shades and blinds. So they have unique shade designs that actually transform raw sunlight that casts a beautiful glow across the space and brightens dark rooms or dark corners of a room. They've got advanced fabrics. They provide clear views to the outside of your home while providing daytime privacy inside. Energy efficient shades that lead the industry providing insulation against heat and cold for year-round comfort and helping save on your utility bills. A really cool part of Hunter Douglas uh, Shades is that they've got PowerView automated shade technology. So that allows you to program your shades to move automatically throughout the day based on what you want. So that could be letting light in slowly as you wake up, opening entirely for a sunny breakfast, uh, adjusting to block the hot midday sun, or raising just in time for a perfect sun sunset. My parents have Hunter Douglas shades. They have had Hunter Douglas shades for a very long time. They're an awesome company. They make a really good product. They're the company that my parents trust um, to provide shade in their home and they really, really enjoy them. Uh, so visit HunterDouglas.com slash today for your free uh, style get smarter design guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. That's HunterDouglas.com slash for your free design guide. HunterDouglas.com slash Okay, so Joe Biden gave a speech uh, last week, and it was, um, you've probably seen it at this point. He recognized the lives that were lost, and um, he did see one part that I thought was compelling. I know a lot of people give him grief for this. He talked about how his son, Beau, who also served, he actually died of brain cancer after after he served, But Joe Biden talks about his son, Beau, a lot. Now, some people criticize him for inserting Beau into the conversation when it doesn't really make sense or trying to distract from the conversation or subject at hand by bringing up his son or trying to garner sympathy. But the fact of the matter is, is that he did lose his son, and I imagine that it is incredibly painful for him, even if I hope that he's not using him as a political pawn. I hope that he's not. I will try to give the benefit of the doubt there. Some people accuse him of doing that, but I don't doubt that his pain is sincere. I thought that the pain that he communicated when he was talking about his son, when he was talking about the families who have now lost their sons and their daughters, um, and their sisters and brothers and friends, I thought that that was genuine. Now, maybe I am naive for thinking that, you know, a 50-year politician can be genuine when talking about these things, but in giving the benefit of the doubt, I did think that that was sincere. Do I think that he comforted the nation at all? No. I truly do think that he is on um, a serious and a very steep cognitive decline, and I think that he... And I don't think it's rude of me to say. I think that this is factual. I think it's important to note that I think that he communicates. It's just his disposition uh, communicates weakness. And uh, I think that he is very old. And that's not his fault. He is just old. And I don't think that we should elect someone this old again, especially someone in this kind of state. And I don't think that he addressed the concerns of many Americans about Prioritizing American lives, and if there truly is a plan, if America is protected, and if we have an administration that is actually fighting for the interests and the security of the United States. I think most people believe right now that we don't. And that is why Biden's approval rating has plummeted so much in the past few days. I don't know that he recovers. I, I don't know that he recovers from this. Now, He said in his speech, um, when he was talking, you know, trying to say that the people who have given their lives and the people who are still serving right now, that they are brave. And he quotes um, Isaiah 6, 8. Here's a clip of him doing that. Those who have served through the ages have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah. When the Lord says, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? American military has been answering for a long time. Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. All right. So obviously he didn't write that. He is a speechwriter who wrote that. It very much reminds me of... Um, the inauguration, there were many instances of him and others quoting scripture in a way that was completely decontextualized and therefore misapplied. And please don't butt Trump me. I have talked plenty of times um, about Trump sometimes doing the same thing, although I don't think necessarily that you saw it in this way. And I do want to ask all of the people on the left, who are constantly and exclusively accusing people on the right of being Christian nationalists, and the definition of that gets changed about every five seconds. Apparently, it's very malleable, depending on the situation and the person you're talking about. Like, is this Christian nationalism? To use a verse that has nothing to do with the military, to apply to the American military? Like, is that Christian nationalism? Is Joe Biden the big Christian nationalist threat that you said that Trump was and you said pretty much exclusively Trump supporters are? Like, I just want to be clear on that. And I think that we should be fair. And for to be fair, on my end, I actually did see maybe one person on the left say that, oh, Dem- see Democrats and Republicans, they're both Christian nationalists. I don't even know if it's accurate to describe this as Christian nationalism, again, whatever that means. And I have sought to define that as clearly as possible on this podcast um, before. And I've talked to some people about what it means and what it doesn't mean um, and the goods and the bads and all of that. We won't get into that conversation right now, but I think that we should just be able to say, wow. And this was spoken like someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible. Um, and uh, we can just kind of leave it at there. So let me give you some background um, on Isaiah and what Isaiah actually is. And I took from a few different um, resources here. So Isaiah is a prophet that the Lord called uh, in a vision to prophesy about Judah So uh, in Isaiah 6, 8, the Lord is asking whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah's response was, to volunteer, to say, here I am, send me. So to give you some background about the book of Isaiah and what is happening, um, there was a, a time of peace for about 52 years. Uh, King uh, And then King Uzziah of Judah, he died of leprosy in 739 BC. And then that was the same year that Isaiah began his prophetic ministry after being called by the Lord. Uh, they, The Lord wanted, Isaiah to tell Judah that, uh, look, you have betrayed me, you have rebelled, and a time of judgment is coming. Isaiah doesn't feel like he is up to the task. In Isaiah 6, he says, woe to me, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so that is one trait that we see in all of the Lord's prophets, um, is a trait of humility, of feeling like they're not up to the task and even a hesitant to give the message that the Lord wants them to give. Because very often we see the message that the Lord wants these prophets to give is a very difficult message, one of uh, judgment and one of wrath, one of calling out sin. And we know that uh, prophets are not often welcomed uh, when they are giving that kind of message because people don't want to hear about their sin. Um, so God is uh, God wants to prepare his people for what's to come. The book of Isaiah talks about God's judgment for their rebellion, God's judgment on, um, on the nation for their sin, and then ultimately how he is going to redeem them, how he is going to uh, show them mercy and Show them grace, even as they have turned their back on God. Um, In Isaiah six, we hear God say that uh, that they are blind and deaf to God's commands, and that Isaiah is to go to them and to try to open their ears and to open their eyes to a message of repentance. We also see foreshadowing in the book of Isaiah for the ultimate, for the Messiah, Jesus, who is going to come and ultimately um, save both Jews and Gentiles, who is going to ultimately once and for all one day bring total peace and safety to Israel. Um, Israel will then, through the Messiah. The book of Isaiah says, be a light to all of the nations. One day there will be no more rebellion. There will be no more punishment for rebellion. There will be no more wrath on those whom God has chosen and saved. And so what Isaiah is called to um, is not military service, has nothing to do with American military service, has nothing to do with any kind of military service. We are talking about a very burdensome task, a very dreadful task in many ways, but um, a, a significant task to bring God's message of judgment and a call to repentance and a promise of deliverance and grace to God's chosen people and to prophesy about the one who is to come. And so I encourage you to actually read Isaiah 6 and to read the book of Isaiah and see that God One, as we see in the first chapter of Isaiah, he is holy, holy, holy. That's who God is. That is what his character is. That is the essence of who he is. He is holy, so he cannot tolerate sin. And he loves his people too much to tolerate sin, and to allow them to wallow in the misery of sin, and that even though he has every right to wipe his people off the map, and I'm speaking as a, a saved Gentile, so I am speaking, when I say his chosen people, in today's context, I am talking about his church. I am talking about all of those who he, whom he has saved um, through Christ. He loves us too much, just as he loved Israel too much, to allow us to wallow in our sin, to abandon us. He has made a promise to us today through Christ to deliver us. And so as we look at the judgment upon Israel because God as holy cannot tolerate sin and we look at his promise of deliverance both then and later uh through the Messiah through Jesus Christ, we too have hope and we are put in our place just as Isaiah was before a holy God to remember that we are but dust that we are too unclean um if it were not for the blood of Christ that has washed over us. As Ephesians 2 says, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ by grace, we have been saved. So Isaiah paints a beautiful picture of the gospel, a beautiful picture of what's to come. Um, Ephesians 2, I think, is the best summation um, of the gospel. Uh, and so, this is much bigger, Isaiah 6-8 itself, and then in its context, the book of Isaiah, the entirety of scripture is so much bigger and better than what Joe Biden or any president or any pastor or any leader is speaking to when they take a verse out of context and apply it to something that is not actually there. And that's not, that doesn't just go for uh, for someone who identifies as Catholic or someone who identifies as uh, as Protestant. It doesn't matter. The scripture means what it means. There may be multiple applications of scripture, but there is one right interpretation of scripture, and we can debate what that means. But in order to do that, we actually have to look at the context. We have to look at the history. We have to look at the author. We have to look at the purpose. We have to look um, at each verse in light of scripture as a whole. That is so important for us interpreting scripture and applying scripture. And I actually think that it is blasphemy. I think it is a huge um disservice to Christianity and a huge misrepresentation of christianity um when we apply verses to something much more superficial than the profundity of the um gospel itself and so i one good thing that i that I think exists in all of this is that um maybe people will look up isaiah six eight and that God will use this for good, um, that they will look at the book of Isaiah. Maybe they'll read the Bible for the first time. So praise God for that. Thank you. I can say thank you, Joe Biden, for bringing up the Bible, because maybe people will look at Isaiah 6, 8. Maybe they'll look at the context, and maybe they'll, maybe they'll read Isaiah 53. They'll see the Messiah prophesied, and they will come to know Christ, because the Holy Spirit can actually work through that. Um, So that could be a beautiful thing that comes out of all of that. And I am very thankful for it. Do I think that Joe Biden is some dangerous Christian nationalist, whatever the heck that even means? No. But I think all of us, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, should be careful as far as we can as far as we can to make sure that we are uh, reading, interpreting, and talking about Scripture in a way that fits with its context and with its intended meaning. Meaning. All right, I've got um, a little bit more uh, encouragement for you guys in just one second, but I've got to tell you about our last sponsor for the day, and that is Good Ranchers. So we love Good Ranchers at our house. You guys know it. We use it all the time. We've got steaks. We've got chicken. uh, We've got pre-marinated chili lime chicken. We've got non-pre-marinated chicken. We've got filets. We've got ground beef and we really love it. It just makes our life so much easier. We love that it's all 100% American craft beef and better than organic chicken. We love that they support American farmers. The people at Good Ranchers have personally traveled around the country to meet the farmers um, that they are working with. So they are ensuring that you are getting high quality meat. And uh, they've really just perfected the whole process. You go online, you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie and you pick the meat that you want, and they put it in a box, and they individually wrap everything. It's vacuum sealed and they ship it to your house in five days or less, especially if you use my promo code. You'll get free express shipping, by the way. And then it's ready to put in a freezer. We've got a freezer in our laundry room that we put it all in, or it's ready to grill. It really does just make life so much easier. It's also a really great gift. Like if you know someone in your life who loves to grill, this would be an awesome gift for them, especially if you buy them a subscription, because if you do that, then you save 20% on each box. So it's really a good deal. Plus with my link, goodranchers.com slash you get an additional $20 off and free express shipping. Or you can use code Allie at checkout. It's goodranchers.com slash Allie, goodranchers.com slash Allie. So the beauty of what we read in Isaiah, the beauty of the three points that we were talking about earlier, as we remember that we are but dust, that God's great plan of redemption is so much bigger than what's happening right now, so much bigger than us, um, so much bigger than all of the things that we are worried about. And all we are called to do is to trust and obey God until our uh, time has been appointed to die or until Jesus comes back. The beauty in all of this is the reminder that God is working, that he is working all things together for his glory and our good, Romans eight twenty eight, and that is active. He is working right now. He is not a God who comes in afterward and cleans up the mess. Remember, he is suspended in the eternal now. He is not constrained by time or space the way that we are. He is totally sovereign over all of it, totally in the know, uh, totally in power, and nothing can thwart his will. Job 42, 2 everything, even while it seems like it's falling apart, it is actually coming together according to the Lord's sovereign will. Does that mean that he enjoys um, watching sin and evil and corruption? No, absolutely not. There are things that go against his moral will, even while his sovereign will cannot be thwarted. And that's why he promises that one day he is going to destroy wickedness forever. Like He is not just He's not just sitting idly by as it seems like evildoers are thriving and are coming into power. He has a plan to take care of all of it. That is what we can trust in this idea. Why does God let, you know, bad things happen? And I understand that question because I think it speaks to an understanding of God's power, that if God really is all powerful and he is everywhere and he's totally in the know, why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? I think it's a great question. The answer is, we don't know why everything bad, bad thing that happens, happens. We don't know the answer to that. What we do know is that he cares about it and that there is recompense coming. There is revenge that is of the Lord that is coming one day and he will destroy wickedness. He will destroy evil. He will reign in perfect peace and righteousness forevermore and that Satan will not get the last word. Everything is working together for his glory and our good. And God's work doesn't always make headlines. It's not always trending on Twitter. It's not the thing that's being talked about on social media or among our friend groups. It's not the thing that is being written about by academics and philosophers at all times. And yet it is the most important thing, the realest thing, and the biggest thing that is happening at all times. And we have a privilege as Christians to be a part of that. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us again for his glory and the good of his people. And so we have to ask for strength to surrender our grip on the things of this life and to stop putting hope and to stop placing our happiness in the things that we have or the things that we want to have and the things that we want to happen. Because all of that, no matter how good they may be, no matter how trustworthy they may seem, uh, they are slipping away. And so we might as well just surrender and to put our trust and to put our happiness and to put our our hope and the one thing that is sure. And that is um, if we are in Christ, eternity and glory and joy with him forever. Um, all right. That's all we've got for today. I'll see you back here tomorrow uh, for an awesome, awesome conversation with, um, well, actually it could be one, or t- one of two conversations that are being filmed tomorrow. So I won't say which one it is. Both of them are awesome and you will get to hear it tomorrow. So I'll see you guys then.